know you're there. I see Blog you. Talk Radio. J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us all today. Well, as those of you who received the newsletter know, we are having as our guest today for the full hour, for the full show, Greg Braden, a well-known scientist and author. We'll get to that in a moment. For those of you who do not yet get the newsletter, please visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv and get part of the Better World community. It's exciting. We have a weekly radio show and TV show aired here in New York City, so it will be a pleasure to have you as part of it. Today we're going to be dealing with one of the central issues of our time that Greg Braden, in his most recent book, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate, focuses heavily on in this book while uncovering a lot of myths, curiously enough, found at the foundation of our scientific thinking and even methodology. The question of who are we? Who are we? This is so important, and we have so little truck with the actual answer, whether we look at this matter philosophically or even religiously or certainly scientifically, we are really left hanging with a proper, sensible, and deep answer to that important and question that has been resounding throughout the ages that has plagued man, the existentialists, all of the philosophers, all spiritual thinkers, wisdom traditions, East and West, that question is the bedrock, if you will, of most really rigorous thinking. So it's really a pleasure to have Greg on today to discuss this matter uh, along with all of the issues that are facing us as a planet. And as I said, those of you who listen with any regularity know that we do our best here at A Better World to, of course, make the world better. And one of the ways of doing that is by asking good questions meaningful questions and coming up with answers from any number of different sources that will somehow speak to our mind, heart, and souls. Greg is a very interesting man. He has an extraordinary background. He started off uh, in his professional life as a computer geologist for Phillips Petroleum during the 1970s and the energy crisis. He worked as a senior computer systems designer with Martin Marietta Defense Systems. And later on, he worked uh, also for during the Cold War, that is, I'm sorry, until uh, 1991 when he became the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems. But this was only part of Greg's yearning. That was satisfying one aspect of his nature. The rest began to be addressed through his quest for knowledge, for a larger and deeper understanding. Hence, this book and the many others that he has uh, written that are basically paradigm, paradigm changing and shattering, actually, like the God Code, the Divine Matrix, 
fractal time. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to be focusing on his latest book, Deep Truth, which really goes into the nitty-gritty of what we're facing here in the year, this pivotal year, as many think of it, of 2012. So, Greg, are you on the line? I'm right here. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you just fine, absolutely. Welcome to a better world, my friend. Mitchell, it's so good to be here, and I am so excited to be on this program for the full hour. I want to let you know how much I appreciate that hour. And uh, my sense is that uh, our time together, even though it is a full hour, that's going to go by very quickly. And I'm I'm excited to share what we're going to share during this hour. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. You know, you and I spoke, you know, Greg, some 20 years ago, actually, rather briefly, when you were just sort of kicking up your teaching career, doing the circuit out in Arizona and the West Coast. And uh, it was long before Internet and where we could have had a an easy uh, relationship across the country, but I remember our contact, and uh, I've kind of watched you blossom over the years, and it's it's been really wonderful to see, and I, I really appreciate your contribution. Well, uh, thank you so much for your kind words, and uh, yeah, 20 years ago, it was a different world. <laughs> yeah, without, it so was a different without world. This, yeah, without this internet. But, uh, exactly. You know, the, message, the message is essentially the, the same, and, and yeah. You did such a beautiful job in the the introduction. My um, I was trained as a scientist, and my background is is in the hard sciences. But yeah. you know, it really um, for me it was less of a, of a leap and more of a logical progression to mm-hmm. carry what the science, what the best science of our time is revealing about ourselves yeah. and our relationship to the world and and how we solve our problems to carry that to a larger mainstream audience beyond simply uh, the scientific periodicals and uh and the the peer reviewed groups. So for me it was it was very good training. The corporations were good for me. Uh, I learned a lot yeah. from corporations about the way people think, about the way they expect yeah. to be shown new information. Um and uh uh I, the corporations were good to me. I did good work for them and what's interesting, Mitchell's a lot of the cities that I go to now where I worked in the corporations my coworkers who knew me as an engineer then come uh, and are part of the audiences now, and uh, oh, as we're all going through this shift together. <laughs> That's very interesting, you know. And to think that of those military-style corporations for whom you worked, Greg, that there would be such people emerging that are interested in what you have to say now is, you know, it's very striking. It shows that mainstream America and mainstream thinking is really opening up and there is awakening happening in all sectors of society, you know? Well, I I think there is, and and the reason for that is because the world has changed, and no one has really come out uh, in the mainstream media encapsulating, number one, the fact, and it is a fact, that the world of the past no longer exists. We no longer live in a world of isolated countries or economies or technologies or energy or defense. And what that means is our lives have changed. So many people in our communities, I know you see it in your community, Mitchell, I do it in mine as well, many people are struggling and the reason they're struggling, one of the re- the key reasons, is because they believe that the changes we're seeing today are temporary. They they look at the world today as a temporary disruption, a little speed bump in the road of life. Yes. And they're waiting for things to get back to normal, and to they're trying back. to That's solve right. the problems of their lives in the world. They're trying to solve those problems through the solutions that we've used in the past and those solutions Correct. no longer work. So so those That's that right. are clinging to an idea of a world that no longer exists, uh, those yes. are the people that are having the most difficult time right now. And that's why I think the information in this book is, is key, because it helps us to understand, number one, why we're living a, a time that is unprecedented. We've never seen in our lives the, the, the number and the magnitude of crises that we're seeing right now and we've never had to solve so many problems so quickly. So that, exactly. that is the the doorway that opens uh, uh, opens the path to new possibilities and new solutions. My hope in writing this book 
is those solutions are based on the new discoveries that reveal our true relationships to the world, to the past, to our bodies, yes. to the way we yes. solve our problems. And, and I think that's probably yeah. what we're going to talk about today. That's absolutely true. We're And what you do in this book, I think, is very effectively recontextualize, Greg, where we're coming from as a humanity. Even, in fact, beyond that, even a sentient life on the planet Earth and the Earth in its place in the larger cosmos. It's really time that we are stepping up to, you could say, a larger and higher identity than simply our Earthling life, which, by the way, is perfectly good in itself. But what with the discoveries of astronomers? What with the, uh, the Mars mission? We are seeing that through astrophysics, etc., that even our paradigm of <clears throat> uh, the planets going around the sun, the way we've been taught to think about, let alone the old geocentric theory, is not actually even accurate anymore either. That, well, that I have true. recently so, learned. I'd love to hear you talk about that. That the sun itself is chasing other parts of the of the Milky Way. So well, it, even it, it that is isn't what we thought it was. Sure. Well, yeah, and what it tells us, it tells us that we're we're constantly re uh, revamping our understanding of right. our relationship. This is the value of science. Science can only serve us if we allow science to be honest. And what I mean yes. by that is, science is designed to be constantly updated, constantly upgraded, as new discoveries tell us where we can flesh out deeper truths of our past, or sometimes new discoveries tell us where the thinking in the past was, was incomplete or sometimes incorrect. Yes. Science mm-hmm. can only serve us if if we allow ourselves to, to keep science current, and this is where yes. where we're having the problem today. Um, the That's best right. minds of our in time. Fact, one, of the, one of the fine points you make, and I, I really would like to ask you to define deep truth for us, and then to outline the handful of deep truths that you identify that you feel that we should all know. And if I could just sneak this one in, you make the very fine point that I very much appreciate that our textbooks and our education altogether through media and through literally all media um, are far lagging behind. We're still in the old Newtonian mechanical state of things, nowhere approaching the quantum understanding. No, we're approaching even what's going beyond that. So uh, that's so important because science is far ahead of mainstream society. And as you said, if science isn't kept honest, number one, and truly imbuing society with its new discoveries, we're living in two different worlds. We become schizophrenic. Well, absolutely, Mitch. You know, before we go any further, I'm I'm just going to to say I'm getting um, bounce back on my my receiver, my phone. So if I'm talking Are over you? your words, I'm going to apologize. But that's I'm getting an echo and a ba- apparently there's a delay that's happening here. So just I want oh, to say that. And, yeah, we'll do our sure. best to work with it. So absolutely, if you would dig into deep truth, where the notion comes from and what you had in mind and what are those uh, handful of deep truths you want us to know about, Greg? Sure. Well, well, even before I do that, I just want to pick up on on something you just said, that the best minds of our time are are telling us it is a fact. It's not our imagination. uh, It's not New Age uh, philosophy or New Age thinking that this time is different. We, this generation, these years, this time we're facing the greatest number of crises a major magnitude crises. They uh, there are yes. multiple. Uh, they are nested crises, and they are converging in this window of time. And they're telling us never have so many people. Now seven billion plus people on the planet had to solve so many problems so quickly in such a short period of time, and each problem of such consequence in our lives. So with yes. that backdrop, that's this yes. is the reason that, that I wrote this this book. New discoveries are overturning 150 years of false science and many of the beliefs that actually have led to the crises themselves. 
new mm-hmm. discoveries are telling us where our thinking was either incomplete or in some cases it was wrong. Uh, and you would think that people would be really happy to know that and that the new discoveries would be embraced quickly. And the reality yes. is that there is a, a reluctance, and in some cases there's an outright resistance in the mainstream to share these discoveries. And so this is mainstream media, mainstream television, mainstream documentaries, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks. And I, I have yes. to be very clear, and I'm just going to stop here for a moment. When we talk about classrooms and textbooks, we're also talking about teachers. I want to be very clear, yes. it's not the teacher's fault. In the United States of America, this I've learned that this works differently in different countries, but in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, in public schools, each teacher is bound by a covenant with the state within which they teach they can share in a classroom only curricula that has been approved uh, by the school board. So if a school board has, for whatever reason, not approved the new discoveries, the new science, teachers are teaching, by definition, what is obsolete science to our young people. So that would be important at any time. It's, it's critical now because our young people and, and those who are studying these traditions, they're being asked to solve the problems, the greatest crises of of our very survival with the same thinking that led to the crises, and the consequence is that the solutions uh, aren't aren't helping. So that's yes. why I think this this new information is is so critical. So, so you I agree with you. I a quick answer would be to that issue is that they take your book and integrate it into the curriculum <laughs> in order to overturn. They're, they're doing that, Mitchell. Their uh, college level courses in Canada uh, began in July of this year using yes. uh, the book Deep Deep Truth was actually uh, the, the core curricula for the engineering class that was taught over the summer. And then elements of Deep Truth are oh. being incorporated in into mainstream uh, and maybe oh. some of the elements that we're, that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that's excellent to hear. And it's not in the United States, but it's in Canada where that has begun. But it's got to begin somewhere, and thank goodness it's beginning somewhere. So, well, yeah, it, it is. So, yeah, so yeah. The, the book Deep Truth it, itself, the, the title, <clears throat> the, yes. the question you were asking, where that title come from? Correct. It's interesting. Uh, this book had no title until it was almost complete. And it was mm. it was during uh, I was actually reading a biography of Albert Einstein doing some research, and I was reading about a conversation that Einstein had with a friend and colleague of his in the mid 20th century, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Niels Bohr, and yeah. it was it was the mid 1940s when new discoveries were overturning some of the deepest held beliefs, the deepest truths of science, and Niels Bohr commented on those discoveries, and his comment was a quote. I'd like to share that quote right now. It was, the, quote, the quote simply said, it is the hallmark of any deep truth that its negation is also a deep truth. That's the end of the quote. Mm. When I read that, what, what Niels Bohr was saying, he was saying that when new discoveries overturn what we once held as the deepest truths of science, and the new discoveries themselves become the new deep truths. And when I read yes. it, I said, that's got to be the title for this book, because uh-huh. precisely, yeah, it's, it's what we're talking about. It, these are yes. the new discoveries, peer-reviewed discoveries. These aren't speculations, and, and it's not my opinion. These are peer-reviewed discoveries that are changing the way we've been led to think of our relationship to ourselves, one another, to our our world, to our earth, to the past, the way we solve our problems, the the discoveries are are overturning what we've been led to believe about ourselves on the one hand, and on the other hand, those discoveries aren't being disseminated in uh, in, in a big way. So that was where yeah, that's the, the, the origin of the phrase from Niels Bohr. Right, that's excellent. It almost sounds like a scientific koan, you know, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, it has it, a certain you know, paradoxical I, I, nature to it. Sure, I, I often wonder, you know, when when a brilliant man like Niels Bohr, when he makes a statement like that, if he yeah. even knows, and the moment he's making the statement, if he has any idea of how profound 
what he's about yeah. to say actually is, or or after he said it, does he have any idea how profound uh, of a statement he's just made? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Very true, very true. And actually, yeah. it brings to mind uh, the work of uh, of Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, which lets us know that from a scientific point of view, it's it's in it's understood that there will be a revolution in thinking about the scientific paradigm of a given historical period, that it's virtually inherent in the scientific model, that it will be overturned with a new model. Well, it, it, that's true, and, and that's, that is why this is so important. The great minds of the late 1800s, early 1900s, when they gave us the discoveries uh, that changed the world and changed our lives. If you look closely, Thomas Edison, for example, and Nikola Tesla that gave us the, the power sure. grid that we use today and, and exactly. some of the early medi- medical models, those scientists all said very clearly that these discoveries were given as temporary bridges to a better world. They were never meant to be mm. the destination. Yeah. They were meant to be yeah. bridges to help us to have a better world and better lives until yeah. new discoveries came along to change them. But for whatever reason, those those statements were forgotten, and people began to believe that transmitting power along you know skinny lines on skinny sticks uh, across the planet <laughs> is, is the way to do it. And the way, the way, exactly. And that, that's why, I mean, uh, really over the course of these decades, Greg, I have been um, in private practice as a holistic psychotherapist because I always boil down when I look at uh, history and I look at human expressions on the planet from a psychological point of view that we have these emotional blocks, these mental fixations that do not allow us to move forward in a smooth way and progress which is why we have textbooks that are still putting out old ideas, as you were saying. And you had to list this as one of the several deep truths that we have to cognize if we're going to be going forward. Well, I think that's true. And, and so maybe the, the thing to do, Mitchell, if you're okay with it, can I identify five of the, the false assumptions uh, of science uh, yeah, I was taught please. when I was in school, I'm sure you were taught, many of our listeners were taught when they were in school. If they have young people in school, they're still teaching these things today. I'm, I'd like to identify, there are many, but I've chosen five that I think are key. Uh, if I could identify them, every one of please them is a false assumption. Let's just let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin on Blog Talk Radio, and we are spending the hour today with Greg Braden, the author of many books, the last of which, uh, the latest of which, I should say, is Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate. And please go on. I would like you to deconstruct that as well. Sure. So so five false assumptions uh, that I, I've identified. If you're taking notes, please write false at, at the top of, of this page. <laughs> yes. And I, I want to preface this. It's not my opinion. These our scientific facts, peer-reviewed science is now showing us that every one of these is absolutely false, but they're still being taught as fact in the classroom. Uh, the first uh, false assumption, probably no surprise to uh, to our listeners, is based on a Darwinian idea regarding evolution. We've been taught that evolution explains life in general and human life specifically. The problem is the data no longer supports that assumption, the physical data doesn't. The now the, the DNA data uh, is telling us very clearly that uh, something else is happening here. It doesn't tell us exactly what has happened, but it tells us that the, the Darwin's idea of evolution is not the solution, is not the answer to the mysteries posed by life. However, they are still being taught as fact in the classroom, and no competing theories. And I'm, I'm not talking about creationism here. But no mm-hmm. other competing theories are being allowed in the classroom. So I, I my sense, uh, I don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think alongside the theories of evolution and Darwin's ideas, uh, we owe it to our young people to be honest with them and share with them the new discoveries 
um, that, that cast new light on new possibilities, and that that simply isn't happening. So that's yes. the first false assumption. And so quickly, the second. Do you feel? Do you feel, Greg, that um, just parenthetically here, that the Darwinian thinking applies to the rest of the animal and plant kingdom, and well, not the human? Sure. What I can say is this: as a geologist. Uh, evolution is a fact in the fossil record for some forms of life. Uh, okay. We can see it with some uh, forms of plant life, some forms of animal life. There is something about human life that is uniquely different, and I talk about it in the book, and especially when we get into yes. to the, the DNA. Uh, yes. Evolution does not explain human origins. We showed up uh, in this world 200,000 years ago in, in the bodies uh, that we see today, those bodies have not changed in 200,000 years. Same proportion, same brain capacity, same crani- brain size, cr- cranial capacity. Um, I don't know exactly what happened scientifically. You know, I have my mm-hmm. personal suspicions. But yes. scientifically, what we have to say is Darwin's idea of evolution does not explain what we see as the fact of, uh, of our existence. And the new discoveries that may shed new light on uh, on our existence, those are the discoveries that are not being shared in the mainstream. So, and that's the first okay. false assumption. The, the second one is with regard to civilization itself. When I was in school back in the 60s and 70s, uh, and and our young people there being taught the same thing, the advanced civilization began 5,000 years ago. It's only 5,000 years old. Uh, it's linear. It's a one-time deal uh, that we have advanced from primitive to the technological sophistication that we see today. Uh, the problem is that the, the physical peer-reviewed data, the archaeological discoveries, simply don't support that assumption. There now is evidence uh, of advanced civilizations on multiple continents, some of them I've documented personally, uh, that are pushing that date back over twice as old as what we've been led to believe into the end of the last ice age. Advanced civilization in the end of the last ice age with mathematics, architecture, agriculture, a knowledge of cycles of time, and certainly a knowledge of, uh, of astronomy. Uh, mm-hmm. That's false assumption number two. Number three, false assumption is based in uh, the ideas of physics. We're being taught that consciousness is somehow separate from our physical world. Uh, and the problem is that the, the data itself, again, doesn't support that. And some of the, the leading physicists, of the 20th century were leading proponents of the idea that, that consciousness, not only is it is it not separate from our physical world, but consciousness is the stuff our physical world emerges from. Uh, Professor John Wheeler, Princeton University, another colleague of Albert Einstein's. Uh, John Wheeler just died in 2008. And mm-hmm. before his, his death, he said very clearly that we we must write the word um, observer out of the textbooks because there are no observers in the universe. We are part of all that we see, and we are influencing uh, our physical reality and the outcome of our physical reality through the way the choices, thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, the choices that we make in our lives. So the data clearly is showing there's no, no doubt now that everything is connected through an underlying field of energy. That is a scientific fact. And, and the book, The Divine yes. Matrix, talks about that. The The question now is, do we influence that unified field? And if we do, to what degree? That's where the the, sure. the, uh, the arguments are coming that's up. The that's the real it. I mean, yeah. Let's mention here, uh, you know, the good work of uh, the uh, British biologist Rupert Sheldrake, with morphogenetic fields, which helps to expand this paradigm, and then even his parapsychological work with fields being influenced mentally uh, and telepathically between uh, even animals and their masters, their owners, with the work that he has done with dogs and the signaling that takes place. So we also have in quantum physics the notion of the butterfly effect, and sure. non-locality. All of these are different ways of of corroborating the ideas of our influence. The work of Larry Dossey um, and his aggregation of information on prayer of affecting outcomes across the country or the world through mental 
focus and intention. Well, Just absolutely. Name a few. And the list goes goes on and on. And, and the bottom line it does. is that our own science now is telling us uh, that what we've been led to believe about our relationship to the world in the past is, is no no longer accurate. Consciousness is not separate from the world. Consciousness is the stuff our world is made of. And that goes into false assumption number four. Uh, we've been taught that the space between physical things is empty, that everything is separate from everything yeah. else. What happens in one place has no effect on what happens somewhere else. And that leads to a whole line of thinking and a whole line of reasoning about our personal actions, uh, what they mean uh, to others, how they may or may not influence uh, others in, in the world. Now we know that there is no empty space. In the universe, there are fields of energy that exist everywhere. Uh, our machines, our devices, have simply never been designed to detect the kind of energy, non-conventional energy, that we find. And, and yeah. our own science now is, is telling us that, but it's not being acknowledged in, in the mainstream. Number five on this list, it's the last on the list, and I think it, it may be uh, the false assumption that is wreaking the greatest havoc in our world and in our lives today, we may zero in on this one first, is another mm -hmm. Darwinian assumption. Uh, this is the idea from Charles Darwin that nature is based upon a model of what he called, oh. in his time, he called this survival of the strongest. It was later mm -hmm. interpreted as survival of the fittest. Darwin mm -hmm. himself, this is his language, he called it survival of the strongest. It's such a very dangerous way uh, to think. And people say yes. to me all the time, well, well, Greg, you know, okay, so maybe Darwin didn't get it right. That was 150 years ago. This is the 21st century. We live in the modern world. What difference could Darwin's ideas possibly make in, in our world today? And the way I answer that question is what they have said is, is true. Darwin put these ideas forth in 1859. It was the first year he published his, his book, on the origin of species by means of, of natural selection. Mm -hmm. The civilization that we know today, the modern world of the 21st century, it, it is modern, and it is based upon a foundation of principles that were largely put in place in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it was during that time that Darwin's ideas were introduced as science. They were embraced very quickly without much question, and they became very deeply entrenched in the way we think of ourselves and our world. So when yes. people say, it, give me an example, the economic system of the world that is collapsing right now and causing so much suffering in the world, it's based upon this idea, survival of the strongest. The corporate systems that are wreaking havoc in our lives and our world, the corporations aren't bad. It's the way they've been implemented and the implementation yes. has been based upon this false assumption. We we yes. all, the way we're solving our problems between nations, the big war that doesn't need happen and may happen over the Middle East if, if our thinking yes. doesn't change. The way we, yes. we're dealing with, with diminishing resources, vital resources like fresh water and clean food and uh, and the the energy crisis that we're we're now mm -hmm. facing in terms of diminishing sources of energy and the the uh, the cost of energy that's increasing. Sure. All of the diminishing uh, resource of of oil, especially in particular. Oil, oil is a big fuel. part of it, and it goes even beyond yeah. oil. But but all yeah. of these, the way we have been led to deal with these is by thinking of the world uh, as a world of scarcity, and that there's there's one pie, and everybody's got to fight for their slice. I would challenge our listeners, I would imagine that most of our listeners, even the most spiritually aware and conscious listeners who have done so much personal work on themselves, mm -hmm. subconsciously, we, I would challenge them to, to go into their past and, and answer, have, have you been taught that we live in a world that was called dog-eat-dog? -dog? Is that yes. the way that the world of your childhood w was characterized? And if so, and, and mine as well, uh, yes. if so, even, even subconsciously in the way we deal with problems in our, in our relationships, in our personal lives, it's interesting how frequently this idea of dog-eat-dog dog comes up. And it, sometimes we can catch ourselves and we say, my God, you know, where'd that come from? It, it's a subconscious belief. But the problem, the problem with this is that the best science of our time is now revealed that Darwin's ideas were absolutely false. 
Darwin, and I'm, I'm going to be very clear about this. I, I'm not down on Darwin. I think he was a, a good mm-hmm. scientist. And, yes. You no, know, Darwin. Darwin was the first scientist uh, to try to answer the big questions of life. Uh, like where does life come from, where do we come from, how do things work in this world. He was the first that attempted to answer those questions beyond the realm of the church and the spiritual community. Up until yes. 1859, uh, all those questions were answered largely by, by the church, by the Catholic church. So Darwin took a stab at it through the science as he knew it in his time, and Darwin was the first to say, he said, this, this is just to get us moving he said, I expect that my ideas will be overturned when new discoveries are made. Ah. And the, pro- the problem with that is that mainstream science will not let Darwin's original ideas fall, even though the data doesn't support it. So here's what I mean by that. Darwin believed that when he looked into nature, at little examples in nature, when he saw a colony of ants capturing another colony, and rather than killing them, they enslaved them, and they forced them to work for them, for example. Or when mm-hmm. he saw two, two birds in a nest of, of one species, and another bird would come into that nest and would be immediately ejected and left to die. Darwin believed those little examples in nature were showing him principles that apply to all life everywhere, including humans. And I think this mm-hmm. is where Darwin where Darwin went wrong. He saw nature responding in a specific way, in a specific place, and he tried to generalize that to all life everywhere, including humans. The problem is the data simply doesn't support it. Darwin made a statement in his book, um, the uh, uh, his book of natural selection, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And the statement yes. that he said was that, when he saw those little examples, he said they were little examples of a general rule that leads to the advancement of all life. And the rule that he stated was for us to multiply, to vary, and let the strongest live and the weakest die. Let the strongest live and the weakest mm-hmm. die. That is such a dangerous idea that became so deeply entrenched into the thinking of late 1800s, early 1900s. It's entrenched our young people today in the classroom or in the, uh, the the athletic field, the way that they're taught to to achieve. The emphasis is placed on getting the right answer or scoring the point rather than the excellence of, of the individual. So yep. in the late 1990s, uh, 400 scientific studies asked the same question. They said, what is the optimum amount of competition in any situation? And I want to say a word about competition here, and then I'm going to share what the studies showed. There are two different kinds of competition, and when people hear the word competition, they say, well, isn't competition a good thing? It depends on which kind of competition we're talking about. So there is a form of competition where an individual or a group benefit at the expense of another, where they exploit the weakness of another for their personal or collective gain. And that competition is called violent competition in biology. There's another form of competition where an individual or a group, they excel by mastering and honing their personal skills to to the greatest degree possible. So they learn to do their given task or their given skill. They learn to develop that to the greatest degree possible, and by doing so, it makes other ways of doing the same thing obsolete. That's another form of competition, but we're not exploiting the weakness of another. We're developing our own skills to the greatest extent. So having That's said what you that, could call healthy competition. Healthy competition. So having said that, 400 peer-reviewed studies said, what is the optimum amount of competition? They were talking about violent competition. All 400 mm-hmm. studies came back with the same answer, and the answer was zero. They said everywhere, in the classroom, on the playing field, in the family, in the workplace, violent competition is always detrimental to the individual and to the community that always, always, always cooperation and what is called mutual aid benefit the individual and the group to the greatest extent. 
And in 2008, the very prestigious journal New Scientist really brought this all together in a, a beautiful summary uh, by a man named Michael LePage. And what he said is that what we see in the wild is not every animal out for itself. This was a big eye-opener to, to many people. What we see yes. is not every animal out for itself. He said cooperation plays a powerful role in survival strategies and that when cooperation breaks down, the results can be disastrous, and that's the end of the quote. So this is science now telling us that while we do see violent competition in the world around us, we we see you know uh, uh, lions killing gazelles on the Sunday wildlife programs, and mm-hmm. you know we turn on the six o'clock news and we see violent competition in, in the human world. It's not the rule of nature; it is an aberration of the yeah. natural law. And to the degree that we see the violence, that tells us how far we've strayed from nature and the natural law. Right, and it tells us why continuing to use violent competition to solve our problems is not working. That's why yes. that's why the West has boots on the ground in over thirty countries trying to impose peace. You can you can make people stop fighting, but you cannot make people feel peace in their hearts unless the, the situation changes. So when we when we apply these I'm just going to share one more thing. The researchers took this even one Please. step further. What they said is that that humans, because that's what we're all talking about here, when humans encounter one or some combination of three conditions that we will betray our truest nature of cooperation. And I'll just list those three conditions. When we feel personally threatened, we will become violent. When we feel that our family is threatened, we'll become violent. And when we feel that our way of life is threatened, will become violent. So if we look at the hot spots in the world today and where the, the problems are brewing and where the wars are coalescing, uh, I'm not judging what we've done in the past is right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm going to say that if we truly choose to get to the bottom of bringing peace to the world, at some point we have to address all three of these. People need to feel that they're safe, their families are safe, and that their way of life is, yes. is no longer threatened. And until we do that, I think we're in a vicious circle of violent competition. Uh, yeah. And now our own science gives us the reasons yeah. to think differently. The question is whether or not we choose to embrace what those new discoveries are showing us. Very well put. Very well put. Uh, our uh, illuminated scientist, Einstein, also posed a question for us all to contemplate. A very fundamental question also, which is, is the universe friendly? And if one interprets it as friendly, then we will have different kinds of relationships with each other. And if we interpret it as unfriendly, that is hostile, then we will, of course, have another set of relationships. And if you have boots on the ground in 30 countries, you see the world as hostile. And there's no way to lead. Military boots is what I'm... (laughs) No, I understood. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and no, I'm, no, I'm not down clearly. on the military either. You know, I have a lot of friends and and oh, friends yeah. who have young people in the military, who sure. are very good people doing the very best they can to sure. to make this the best world possible. But I'm sure. I'm going to share one more thing. I think the role of the military it's a form of immune system, if you will. It's a form of immune system. It has a role. It's well, just it does. I think the role. I think the role of the military may be on the verge of of a, of a big change, and I want to share yes. why why that may sure. be. Sure. So I'm, sure. I'm going to go back. Our own science. And let's science. let's leave room. I I want to leave room also for a very important consideration for all of us, which is the subject that you are very articulate on of climate change and global warming. I really want to get to what you've seen and what you believe based on your um, your research, okay? Okay, well, Let's we, we can talk know. about that. Yeah, what, what we're going to do yeah. now actually may be a good segue in, into that. Let's uh, let everybody know first that we are uh, speaking with Greg Braden, the author of Deep Truth and a number of other books, but his most recent, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny and Faith. You are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin on Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us. And, Greg, please carry on.
Well, in our thank you for that. In in our our five false assumptions that we shared at the at the top of the hour, beginning of the program, mm-hmm. the second false assumption is with regard to civilization itself. We've been led to believe that uh, it's only about five thousand years old, that it's linear, and that we're we're at the top of the heap in terms of yes, technology right. and sophistication. And I yeah. mentioned that the archaeology doesn't support that. And in the interest of time, yes. I'm going to do this very briefly. But yes, the best science of our time, peer-reviewed archaeology, is now showing the existence. Uh, these aren't little, uh, you know, little communities. These are. Uh, this is evidence of huge uh, uh, areas uh, of population centers uh, of advanced civilizations on multiple continents in. Northern mm-hmm. Peru, we're seeing it in India, we see it in Egypt. The oldest that we're seeing right now are, is in Turkey. All of these are older than the 5,000 years that we've been led to believe is, is the age of, of history itself. There's a mystery that is a, a common thread that ties all of these ancient advanced civilizations together, and the mystery is this. Prior to the beginning of what we call the time of civilization, prior to 5,000 years ago, in all of the civilizations that are older, there's no evidence of any weapons that has been found in the excavations. There's no evidence of large-scale war to solve their problems. There's no evidence of the need to defend homes and communities. There's no evidence of walls, no evidence of moats, no evidence of mass graves with mutilated bodies that you would expect to Mm. see after those kinds of wars. Interestingly, All of those only appear in the 5,000 years that we call the history of our civilization. Now we know that 5,000 years is not the history of the world forever. It is the history of a single 5,000-year cycle that is linked to many ancient traditions and oral as well as uh, the, the astronomical traditions. The cycle before ours... We don't see that war. The very first evidence we see of large-scale war is at the very beginning of our cycle, uh, ancient Sumeria, about 4,800 years ago. And what a growing number of scientists now are beginning to suspect is that war is not human nature. Violent competition is not human nature. It is an aberration, and war is a habit that began about 5,000 years ago. And if that's true, if it's a habit that was learned it means that we can unlearn that habit as we embrace the new discoveries telling us the truth of our, our deepest relationships of, of cooperation and, and mm, mutual aid. That's so, beautiful. So the archaeology that's a very fine is, way of thinking about it. I appreciate that. It, it, yeah. Well, the archaeology now is confirming what the biology is telling us, and that is that we yes. are not warlike by nature. And now right. that we are at the culmination of a 5,000-year cycle, of time that I know all of our listeners know that uh, December 21st, 2012 is the end of a 5,000 year cycle and the beginning of the next. The question mm-hmm. that our ancestors posed is will we perpetuate this habit of war into the next 5,000 year cycle of human existence and will we use it to solve the problems that arise at the end of this cycle as climate change mm. changes the, our relationship to resources, food, water? Uh, and things like that. I don't know the answer to that. Yes. But that's what we're looking well, these, at. So I is, wanted to these are that. very interesting. Well, I'm very glad you did. I did not know about ancient civilizations, of course, dating back far before 5,000. That I know, but that there were no, there was no evidence of war or or the tools of war is a total new uh, piece of information to me. Well, it's it's bizarre. I, the first the first evidence of the weapons, the first evidence of the weapons yeah. show up five thousand five thousand years ago. Either That's so we have to say, either yeah. we have to say the weapons haven't been found, or they didn't exist. The fact that there are so many of these archaeological sites on different continents under different conditions, I would Surely. expect that we would have seen some weapons somewhere if they exist. And the fact somewhere that exactly. It should also be said that um, in support of what you uh, keep speaking of, of cooperation as the way of survival, distinct, contradistinct from uh, from uh, competition, is also corroborated heavily by a lot of the neuroscience that has emerged over the past 10 to 20 years, which very much shows that we are hardwired for cooperation. We are not hardwired for violence or the competitive 
spirit that we take as the true nature of man. It is not true, and I very much appreciate your helping to further overturn that myth that has gotten embedded in our consciousness. That's very I useful. Absolutely. You know, for now, our, our listeners, I'm, I'm just going to speak directly to the listeners right now. If, if this is new information, and if, if you want to see how deep this model of cooperation runs in the natural world, you need look no further than the body that houses the consciousness that's listening to this broadcast right now because our own science tells us every human body has an average of about 50 trillion cells in the human body. So we are, as, as my dear friend and colleague Bruce Lipton says, Bruce Lipton, we, sure. are, we are a community of 50 trillion cells. Yes. Those 50 trillion cells must cooperate and work together to give us the vitality and the health that allows us to listen to radio programs and, and do all the things we love to do in life. When that cooperation exactly. breaks down, we, we call it disease, and if it goes far enough, we, we call it death. So it, at the right. very essence of our individual lives, we're shown every day nature's truest model of cooperation, if, if we can recognize that. Yes, beautifully put, beautifully put. Because you are, your intuition at the beginning, Greg, was correct, that this time is going to speed by. It is fulfilling your prophecy. And um, I really would very much like to hear you speak about uh, your view and clearing up the subject of, of uh, climate change and global warming. And I'd like to have as the, the crowning end your opinion on 2012. You also gave us a hint just now about the beginning and the end of the cycle, but perhaps you can elaborate on it after you speak about uh, um, climate change. Well, you know, climate change is uh, it's a big topic. I may not even be able to do it justice in this conversation. I'll Surely be not. And, and what I'll say is uh, I elaborate on it uh, along with the, the data and the graphs in the book Deep Truth. So what yes. I can say as a geologist, when people began asking me about climate change, what I know is that we don't have to guess. There is a history of Earth's climate as well as many other things, the rise and fall of sea levels, the magnetic strength of the Earth, how strong is the sun on the surface of our planet, uh, how thick is the ice on the poles? What are the wind currents carrying? Where does the dust and pollen move? There's a record of all of that in the ice yes. cores that are preserved in the, yeah. the poles of the earth. In 1999, scientists drilled through the thickest part of the Antarctic ice to preserve as much as they could uh, before the, the warming uh, destroyed those records. And even the scientists were amazed. Every layer of ice preserves one year of the history of the earth the scientists were amazed when they pulled up 420,000 years of the history of the earth 420,000 layers in those cores now i put the graphs in the book and what they show us very clearly yes. is uh you can see the pattern the cyclic pattern rise and fall of climate and when i say climate that encompasses a lot of things global warming is one facet of climate so you can see the warming and the cooling cycles that are cycles within cycles. They're nested. Uh, and you can see that we should be in a warming cycle right now. The warming cycle that we should be in, um, what the data shows very clearly is that the warming is definitely linked to greenhouse gases. Okay? Now, here's mm -hmm. the part that a lot of people are surprised by, and I want to be very clear. The relationship yes. probably isn't what most people think it is, because it, I'm just going to make a statement, and the graphs in the book you're not going to see on mainstream news because it's not a popular graph. <laughs> but what the what the graphs, what the data from the ice cores show us, is there is a direct relationship between temperature and greenhouse gases. However, here's the relationship: is that the temperatures rise first before the greenhouse gases rise, and that means that the gases are not the cause of the rise in the temperature. The temperatures <laughs> rise usually 400 to 800 years before the levels of the greenhouse gases rise. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I'm going to be very clear. We definitely need to get off fossil fuels. I believe that. We definitely need to find clean, green, sustainable ways of fueling our planet. I believe that. Yes. To blame yes. one another 
and point fingers with regard to a, a natural cycle is not helping anybody right now uh, because what I think we're seeing, uh, we are in the midst of volatile and abrupt climate change. Warming is the first leg. The warming has topped out. The warming topped out in the 90s. And we haven't had any significant warming in the oceans or on the surface of the Earth since the 90s. <clears throat> the data suggests that we're actually moving into the cooling cycle, which follows the warming, which is a bigger problem than the warming, because the cooling cycle affects the northern hemisphere, the northern latitudes, where most of the people of the planet live, where most of our food is grown. And I don't see anyone talking about that right now. So, Well, some have people we, have said uh, that this year... This year, Greg, uh, and July in particular, has been the hottest July on record in, in for, some places, since some, some places it hasn't. Some places yeah. it has, some places it hasn't. And this is the thing about warming and cooling. It's not so, right. the same over the whole planet. What we're saying is right. We, right. we are in a time of volatile climate change, and the climate change is uh, facets of the climate change. Uh, is warming and cooling, facets of the climate change, is precipitation, yeah. uh, increase or decrease. Facets of the climate change are, are changes in the ocean currents that drive the, the weather. So what, climate yes. is the big picture. Weather is the, the local picture. So, when so the are you suggesting changes, then? The are you changes, suggesting then? Yeah, please go on. Well, when the climate changes, the weather changes. And when the weather changes... It changes when it rains, when it snows, how hot or how cold it is. Naturally. When we grow the weather is a subset of climate. Together. Of course, so weather I, is a subset of climate. Yeah. I think what do you think about served, the work? I think we're, we're best served by acknowledging the fact that we are in a time of volatile climate change and we can expect disruptions in yes. the, the familiar patterns of the past and help one another adapt to the changes that the science is showing are probably solar-driven. They are solar cycles. They are nested cycles, 100,000-year uh, mm -hmm. cycles, 40,000-year cycles, 20,000-year cycles, 5,000-year uh, cycles that we're in right now. And interestingly, the 5,000-year cycles of climate change are closely correlated to the 5,000-year cycles of our indigenous ancestors that are called Great World Ages. So December 21st, mm -hmm. the end of 2012, is the end of a 5,000-year cycle. We're going through climate change now that our ancestors went through 5,000 years ago when our cycle began. So if we can recognize that and learn from the past, I think it helps us to, to adapt to the changes rather than pointing fingers of blame. Now, have we contributed has, has That's where I was going. I wanted to know what part of the cycle is anthropogenic. We have to say yes that we're contributing. We have to say that because yes. we're kicking all of this stuff into the atmosphere you know, every day. Did we cause the climate change? The answer is absolutely not. 500,000 years of ice core data show us that we didn't. Yes. And the the belief in the mainstream that it's an open and shut case is absolutely false. There are over a thousand signatures of dissenting scientists from mainstream, very prestigious organizations who cannot go along with the climate change model as it's been presented to the public because the data doesn't support it, but they are not getting a voice. So you wanted yes. my take on climate change. Very is much. It happening? Yes. Yeah, I think it's we're best served by adapting to it rather than trying to stop a natural cycle. And can we change the way we live so we don't add to it? Absolutely, absolutely, we can do that. Uh, and, yeah. and this is this is what the data is, is very clearly showing. And, and the graphs uh, from the ice cores, I showed them in the book, um, yeah. so people can actually see. And they're, they're in mainstream, uh, very prestigious journals like the journal Nature, the journal Science. The journal News Scientist, right. the journal Carbon Dioxide, they're, they're out there. It's just the mainstream has put a spin on it for, for other reasons. So let me bring this up. I, by the way, just so you know, I completely, even though I am an avid and ardent environmentalist, I completely appreciate the points that you're making, and I have reviewed them in the past, and I had a, 
a good friend of mine, a scientist from Germany, on discussing this a few years ago, putting forth the very unpopular belief, even on my show, of that uh, climate change is not anthropogenic. So it's not new to me, but to hear you articulate it as clearly as you did, having done the background research that you have, really finishes it off in many ways. And I very well, much appreciate we have it. To be, we have to be careful because it's not a license just to go out and keep doing what we've been doing. Obviously, oh, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. environmentalist as well. Obviously, what sure. we're doing, the environment of the earth, needs to stop. We're reaching a, a convergence where the environmental crisis, the energy crisis, the climate crisis, and the degradation of, of vital resource crisis and the population crisis all come together uh, that are are forcing us to change the way we think and live. So, you know, that's correct. That, that's where oh, we are. There's right no now. license granted whatsoever, but it's uh, because living as stewards is actually the subject of my book. And climate change or not, we have to learn to respect our earth and treat her sacredly and that means not to abuse resources on any level so i we're wholly aligned with that but i do want to bring this up to kind of a make a strong point um in alignment with what you're speaking of people like bill mckibben and 350.org and james hansen climatologist and very leading voices. I'm not even going to mention Al Gore here, but sure. the others uh, who have brought the anthropogenic view so sharply into um, the mainstream. Um, what do you think? They haven't read the rest of the data? You know what, what? How I, do you I understand I, it? I want to say a, a word about Al Gore. I, I think Al Gore, what Al Gore's work did in his his film and his uh, presentation was he yes. brought this to the into the living rooms of of every household in, in the nation yes. and in much of the world so that we could talk about it i think al gore uh, he relied on others for the data and that data was selective in the in the way it was shown so if you if you look at climate from 1880 until the year 2000 which is what they did it looks like mm-hmm. it's a problem 1880 is the first year that the National Weather Service began keeping the records. Mm-hmm. If you take that section of their data and you put it into the bigger picture, what you see is that we're right where we always are when we reach this point in the cycle. The Earth isn't broken, and we haven't broken it, and that's not a license to keep polluting the atmosphere and causing the sickness and the degradation of environment that we're doing. Um, but we did not cause the climate change, and this is the statement Al Gore made that I think really it was hard. He backed himself into a corner. He said, we cause it, so we have to fix it. We didn't cause mm-hmm. it. And I think the the convergence, now this is, this is, I think, bringing all this together to close out our conversation here. Here yeah. we are, 2012, what so many of our indigenous ancestors at the time told us that our world would change. None of them said it was the end of the world. None of them. Mm-hmm. None of the media that Correct. said that. What, what our ancestors said is that it's the end of a world age, and by definition, it's the beginning of the world age that comes next. What they mm-hmm. said it was the end of a way of living. They said that we wouldn't recognize our way of living as at the end of this transition that we're going through. So I think it's no accident that just as we're recognizing that we don't want fossil fuels degradating. Our, or degrading our, our environment, mm-hmm. it's at the same time that we appear to be running out of the availability, cheap cheap oil, for example, uh, that yes. is, that's creating the problem. And new forms of energy that we haven't even gotten into in this conversation, and I'm not talking about solar, and I'm not talking about wind, and I'm not talking about nuclear, but new forms mm-hmm. of energy uh, are now... Uh, Coming online in other countries, China and Russia yeah. are actually yeah. pioneering some of these new forms of energy. The U.S. is, is lagging behind. But uh, Are you I referring to geothermal? Are you talking about tidal? Those, those are you talking about? And, yep, yeah. those can certainly be part of it. And, and I think it's no accident that only now we've come full circle. We're recognizing the crises at the same time that our science 
is revealing the deepest truths of our relationship to ourselves, to our body, to the earth, to the past, and the way we solve our problems. So when we marry all that together, the new discoveries that give us new ways of solving the problems and the fact that the crises are are pushing us into new ways of thinking, uh, I think there's a beautiful symmetry. Uh, I have never been more optimistic about our nation and our world as I was on January 1st of this year because it is the convergence of the crises that opens the door to new possibilities. Without the crises, we're reluctant to accept new ways of thinking and living. So the crises mm-hmm. are, are the doorway to transformation. In biology, crisis is the catalyst for evolution. So I believe that there is an evolution that is happening in terms of how we think and live. The unsustainable ways that are collapsing around us are giving way to new possibilities of thinking and living that open the door to much better lives and a much better world than, than we've known in the past. And I, I think that's probably mm. a good place uh, for us to close our, our program. Today. Indeed, indeed. That's beautifully put, Craig, and I really I really affirm your points, all of them from the beginning. I think they're very well made. I have been enjoying the book immensely, by the way. It's been very illuminating. You've organized the material really well, and dear audience, I strongly recommend that you pick this up and spend time with it because it's a, it's a life and mind-changing book, and I, uh, I want to thank you for your good work, Greg. I think it's fabulous. You're very and welcome, and thank you for being such a gracious host, and thank you for... Um Thank you for your dedication and your vision and your perseverance in making this forum possible so that we can have these kinds of conversations. There are a lot, of, a lot of places in the world that don't have what we've got right now, the ability to have this conversation. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I'm going to say all of, it's my all pleasure. of our listeners, God bless, take good care. And I, I actually have another interview I've got to go to right this minute. <laughs> okay, fine. Thank you so much, Greg Braden, and we will talk again soon. All right? All right. Thank, thanks so much. Take good care. Okay. Absolutely. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye now. Greg Braden, the author of Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of the of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate. Truly a book that helps to awaken the minds, hearts, and souls of its readers. So uh, it's certainly to, something to tune into. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thanks for tuning in to us today. And every week at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, we are on with A Better World. I so appreciate your listenership and uh, being part of our audience. And become part of A Better World community at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv. You can also order the book that uh, I just spoke about uh, of Greg Braden's there on the website as well. The show is archived. Share it with your friends. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.